Section 2 of The Oxford Book of American Essays Chosen by Brander Matthew This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 2 John Bull by Washington Irving An old song made by an aged old pate Of an old worshipful gentleman who had a great estate Kept a brave old house at a bountiful rate And an old porter too relieve the poor at his gate with an old study filled full of learned old books with an old reverend chaplain you might know him by his looks with an old buttery hatch worn quite off the hooks and an old kitchen that maintained half a dozen old cooks like an old courtier etc an old song There is no species of humour in which the English more excel than that which consists in caricaturing and giving ludicrous appellations or nicknames. In this way they have whimsically designated not merely individuals but nations, and in their fondness for pushing a joke they have not spared even themselves. One would think that in personifying itself a nation would be apt to picture something grand heroic and imposing but it is characteristic of the peculiar humour of the english and of their love for what is blunt comic and familiar that they have embodied their national oddities in the figure of a sturdy corpulent old fellow with a three-cornered hat red waistcoat leather breeches and stout oaken cudgel thus have they taken a singular delight in exhibiting their most private foibles in a laughable point of view and have been so successful in their delineations that there is scarcely a being in actual existence more absolutely present to the public mind than that eccentric personage john bull perhaps the continual contemplation of the character thus drawn of them has contributed to fix it upon the nation and thus to give reality to what at first may have been painted in a great measure from the imagination men are apt to acquire peculiarities that are continually ascribed to them the common orders of english seem wonderfully captivated with the beau ideal which they have formed of john bull and endeavour to act up to the broad caricature that is perpetually before their eyes unluckily they sometimes make their boasted bullism an apology for their prejudice or grossness and this i have especially noticed among those truly homebred and genuine sons of the soil who have never migrated beyond the sound of bow bells if one of these should be a little uncouth in speech and apt to utter impertinent truths he confesses that he is a real john bull and always speaks his mind if he now and then flies into an unreasonable burst of passion about trifles he observes that john bull is a choleric old blade but then his passion is over in a moment and he bears no malice if he betrays a coarseness of taste and an insensibility to foreign refinements he thanks heaven for his ignorance 
he is a plain john bull and has no relish for frippery and knick-knacks his very proneness to be gulled by strangers and to pay extravagantly for absurdities is excused under the plea of munificence for john is always more generous than wise thus under the name of john bull he will contrive to argue every fault into a merit and will frankly convict himself of being the honestest fellow in existence however little therefore the character may have suited in the first instance it has gradually adapted itself to the nation or rather they have adapted themselves to each other and a stranger who wishes to study english peculiarities may gather much valuable information from the innumerable portraits of john bull as exhibited in the windows of the caricature shops still however he is one of those fertile humorists that are continually throwing out new portraits and presenting different aspects from different points of view and often as he has been described i cannot resist the temptation to give a slight sketch of him such as he has met my eye john bull to all appearance is a plain downright matter-of-fact fellow with much less of poetry about him than rich prose there is little of romance in his nature but a vast deal of strong natural feeling he excels in humour more than in wit is jolly rather than gay melancholy rather than morose can easily be moved to a sudden tear or surprised into a broad laugh but he loathes sentiment and has no turn for light pleasantry he is a boon companion if you allow him to have his humour and to talk about himself and he will stand by a friend in a quarrel with life and purse however soundly he may be cudgelled in this last respect to tell the truth he has a propensity to be somewhat too ready he is a busy-minded personage who thinks not merely for himself and family but for all the country round and is most generously disposed to be everybody's champion he is continually volunteering his services to settle his neighbours affairs and takes it in great dudgeon if they engage in any matter of consequence without asking his advice though he seldom engages in any friendly office of the kind without finishing by getting into a squabble with all parties and then railing bitterly at their ingratitude he unluckily took lessons in his youth in the noble science of defence and having accomplished himself in the use of his limbs and his weapons and has become a perfect master at boxing and cudgel play he has had a troublesome life of it ever since he cannot hear of a quarrel between the most distant of his neighbours but he begins incontinently to fumble with the head of his cudgel and consider whether his interest or honour does not require that he should meddle in the broil indeed 
he has extended his relations of pride and policy so completely over the whole country that no event can take place without infringing some of his finely spun rights and dignities couched in his little domain with these filaments stretching forth in every direction he is like some choleric bottle-bellied old spider who has woven his web over a whole chamber so that a fly cannot buzz nor a breeze blow without startling his repose and causing him to sally forth wrathfully from his den though really a good-hearted good-tempered old fellow at bottom yet he is singularly fond of being in the midst of contention it is one of his peculiarities however that he only relishes the beginning of an affray he always goes into a fight with alacrity but comes out of it grumbling even when victorious and though no one fights with more obstinacy to carry a contested point yet when the battle is over and he comes to the reconciliation he is so much taken up with the mere shaking of hands that he is apt to let his antagonist pocket all that they have been quarrelling about it is not therefore fighting that he ought so much to be on his guard against as making friends it is difficult to cudgel him out of a farthing but put him in a good humour and you may bargain him out of all the money in his pocket he is like a stout ship which will weather the roughest storm uninjured but roll its masts overboard in the succeeding calm he is a little fond of playing the magnifico abroad of pulling out a long purse flinging his money bravely about at boxing matches horse races cock-fights and carrying a high head among gentlemen of fancy but immediately after one of these fits of extravagance he will be taken with violent qualms of economy stop short at the most trivial expenditure talk desperately of being ruined and brought upon the parish and in such moods will not pay the smallest tradesman's bill without violent altercation he is in fact the most punctual and discontented paymaster in the world drawing his coin out of his breeches pocket with infinite reluctance paying to the uttermost farthing but accompanying every guinea with a growl with all his talk of economy however he is a bountiful provider and a hospitable housekeeper his economy is of a whimsical kind its chief object being to devise how he may afford to be extravagant for he will begrudge himself a beefsteak and pint of port one day that he may roast an ox whole broach a hogshead of ale and treat all his neighbours on the next his domestic establishment is enormously expensive not so much from any great outward parade as from the great consumption of solid beef and pudding the vast number of followers he feeds and clothes and his singular disposition to pay hugely for small services he is a most kind and indulgent master and provided his servants humour his peculiarities 
flatter his vanity a little now and then and do not peculate grossly on him before his face they may manage him to perfection everything that lives on him seems to thrive and grow fat his house servants are well paid and pampered and have little to do his horses are sleek and lazy and prance slowly before his state carriage and his house-dogs sleep quietly about the door and will hardly bark at a housebreaker his family mansion is an old castellated manor-house grey with age and of a most venerable though weather-beaten appearance it has been built upon no regular plan but is a vast accumulation of parts erected in various tastes and ages the centre bears evident traces of saxon architecture and is as solid as ponderous stone and old english oak can make it like all the relics of that style it is full of obscure passages intricate mazes and dusky chambers and though these have been partially lighted up in modern days yet there are many places where you must still grope in the dark additions have been made to the original edifice from time to time and great alterations have taken place towers and battlements have been erected during wars and tumults wings built in time of peace and outhouses lodges and offices run up according to the whim or convenience of different generations until it has become one of the most spacious rambling tenements imaginable an entire wing is taken up with a family chapel a reverend pile that must have been exceedingly sumptuous and indeed in spite of having been altered and simplified at various periods has still a look of solemn religious pomp its walls within are stored with the monuments of john's ancestors and it is snugly fitted up with soft cushions and well-lined chairs where such of his family as are inclined to church services may doze comfortably in the discharge of their duties to keep up this chapel has cost john much money but he is staunch in his religion and piqued in his zeal from the circumstance that many dissenting chapels have been erected in his vicinity and several of his neighbours with whom he has had quarrels are strong papists to do the duties of the chapel he maintains at a large expense a pious and portly family chaplain he is a most learned and decorous personage and a truly well-bred christian who always backs the old gentleman in his opinions winks discreetly at his little piccadilloes rebukes the children when refractory and is of great use in exhorting the tenants to read their bibles say their prayers and above all to pay their rents punctually and without grumbling the family apartments are in a very antiquated state somewhat heavy and often inconvenient but full of the solemn magnificence of former times fitted up with rich though faded tapestry unwieldy furniture and loads of massy gorgeous old plate the vast fireplaces ample kitchens extensive cellars and sumptuous banqueting halls all speak 
of the roaring hospitality of the days of yore of which the modern festivity at the manor house is but a shadow there are however complete suites of rooms apparently deserted and time-worn and towers and turrets that are tottering to decay so that in high winds there is danger of their tumbling about the ears of the household john has frequently been advised to have the old edifice thoroughly overhauled and to have some of the useless parts pulled down and the others strengthened with their materials but the old gentleman always grows testy on this subject he swears the house is an excellent house that it is tight and weatherproof and not to be shaken by tempests that it has stood for several hundred years and therefore is not likely to tumble down now that as to its being inconvenient his family is accustomed to the inconveniences and would not be comfortable without them that as to its unwieldy size and irregular construction these result from its being the growth of centuries and being improved by the wisdom of every generation that an old family like his requires a large house to dwell in new upstart families may live in modern cottages and snug boxes but an old english family should inhabit an old english manor-house if you point out any part of the building as superfluous he insists that it is material to the strength or decoration of the rest and the harmony of the whole and swears that the parts are so built into each other that if you pull down one you run the risk of having the whole about your ears the secret of the matter is that john has a great disposition to protect and patronize he thinks it indispensable to the dignity of an ancient and honourable family to be bounteous in its appointments and to be eaten up by dependence and so partly from pride and partly from kind-heartedness he makes it a rule always to give shelter and maintenance to his superannuated servants the consequence is that like many other venerable family establishments his manor is encumbered by old retainers whom he cannot turn off and an old style which he cannot lay down his mansion is like a great hospital of invalids and with all its magnitude is not a whit too large for its inhabitants not a nook or corner but is of use in housing some useless personage groups of veteran beef-eaters gouty pensioners and retired heroes of the buttery and the larder are seen lolling about its walls crawling over its lawns dozing under its trees or sunning themselves upon the benches at its doors every office and outhouse is garrisoned by these supernumeraries and their families for they are amazingly prolific and when they die off are sure to leave john a legacy of hungry mouths to be provided for a mattock cannot be struck against the most mouldering tumble-down tower but out pops from some cranny or loophole the grey pate of some superannuated hanger-on who has lived at john's expense all his life 
and makes the most grievous outcry at their pulling down the roof from over the head of a worn-out servant of the family this is an appeal that john's honest heart never can withstand so that a man who has faithfully eaten his beef and pudding all his life is sure to be rewarded with a pipe and tankard in his old days a great part of his park also is turned into paddocks where his broken-down chargers are turned loose to graze undisturbed for the remainder of their existence a worthy example of grateful recollection which if some of his neighbours were to imitate would not be to their discredit indeed it is one of the great pleasures to point out these old steeds to his visitors to dwell on their good qualities extol their past services and boast with some little vainglory of the perilous adventures and hardy exploits through which they have carried him he is given however to indulge his veneration for family usages and family encumbrances to a whimsical extent his manner is infested by gangs of gipsies yet he will not suffer them to be driven off because they have invested the place time out of mind and been regular poachers upon every generation of the family he will scarcely permit a dry branch to be lopped from the great trees that surround the house lest it should molest the rooks that have bred there for centuries owls have taken possession of the dovecote but they are hereditary owls and must not be disturbed swallows have neatly choked up every chimney with their nests martins build in every frieze and cornice crows flutter about the towers and perch on every weathercock and old grey-headed rats may be seen in every quarter of the house running in and out of their holes undauntedly in broad daylight in short john has such a reverence for everything that has been long in the family that he will not hear even of abuses being reformed because they are good old family abuses all those whims and habits have concurred woefully to drain the old gentleman's purse and as he prides himself on punctuality in money matters and wishes to maintain his credit in the neighbourhood they have caused him great perplexity in meeting his engagements this too has been increased by the altercations and heart-burnings which are continually taking place in his family his children have been brought up to different callings and are of different ways of thinking and as they have always been allowed to speak their minds freely they do not fail to exercise the privilege most clamorously in the present posture of his affairs some stand up for the honour of the race and are clear that the old establishment should be kept up in all its state whatever may be the cost others who are more prudent and considerate entreat the old gentleman to entrench his expenses and to put his whole system of housekeeping on a more moderate footing he has indeed at times seemed inclined to listen to their opinions but their wholesome advice has been completely defeated by the obstreperous conduct of one of his sons this is a noisy 
rattle-pated fellow of rather low habits who neglects his business to frequent alehouses is the orator of village clubs and a complete oracle among the poorest of his father's tenants no sooner does he hear any of his brothers mention reform or retrenchment than up he jumps takes the words out of their mouths and roars out for an overturn when his tongue is once going nothing can stop it he rants about the room hectors the old man about his spendthrift practices ridicules his tastes and pursuits insists that he shall turn the old servants out of doors give the broken-down horses to the hounds send the fat chaplain packing and take a field preacher in his place nay that the whole family mansion shall be levelled with the ground and a plain one of brick and mortar built in its place he rails at every social entertainment and family festivity and skulks away growling to the alehouse whenever an equipage drives up to the door though constantly complaining of the emptiness of his purse yet he scruples not to spend all his pocket-money in these tavern convocations and even runs up scores for the liquor over which he preaches about his father's extravagance it may readily be imagined how little such thwarting agrees with the old cavalier's fiery temperament he has become so irritable from repeated crossings that the mere mention of retrenchment or reform is a signal for a brawl between him and the tavern oracle as the latter is too sturdy and refractory for paternal discipline having grown out of all fear of the cudgel they have frequent scenes of wordy warfare which at times run so high that john is fain to call in the aid of his son tom an officer who has served abroad but is at present living at home on half pay this last is sure to stand by the old gentleman right or wrong likes nothing so much as a racketing roistering life and is ready at a wink or nod to out sabre and flourish it over the orator's head if he dares to array himself against paternal authority these family dissensions as usual have got abroad and are rare food for scandal in john's neighbourhood people begin to look wise and shake their heads whenever his affairs are mentioned they all hope that matters are not so bad with him as represented but when a man's own children begin to rail at his extravagance things must be badly managed they understand he is mortgaged over head and ears and is continually dabbling with money-lenders he is certainly an open-handed old gentleman but they fear he has lived too fast indeed they never knew any good come of this fondness for hunting racing revelling and prize-fighting in short mr bull's estate is a very fine one and has been in the family a long time but for all that they have known many finer estates come to the hammer what is worst of all is the effect which these pecuniary embarrassments and domestic feuds have had on the poor man himself instead of that jolly round corporation and smug rosy face which he used to present 
he has of late become as shriveled and shrunk as a frost-bitten apple his scarlet gold-laced waistcoat which bellied out so bravely in those prosperous days when he sailed before the wind now hangs loosely about him like a mainsail in a calm his leather breeches are all in folds and wrinkles and apparently have much ado to hold up the boots that yawn on both sides of his once sturdy legs instead of strutting about as formerly with his three-cornered hat on one side flourishing his cudgel and bringing it down every moment with a hearty thump upon the ground looking every one sturdily in the face and trolling out a stave of a catch or a drinking song he now goes about whistling thoughtfully to himself with his head drooping down his cudgel tucked under his arm and his hands thrust to the bottom of his breeches pockets which are evidently empty such is the plight of honest john bullet present yet for all this the old fellow's spirit is as tall and gallant as ever if you drop the least expression of sympathy or concern he takes fire in an instant swears that he is the richest and stoutest fellow in the country talks of laying out large sums to adorn his house or buy another estate and with a valiant swagger and grasping of his cudgel longs exceedingly to have another bout at quarterstaff though there may be something rather whimsical in all this yet i confess i cannot look upon john's situation without strong feelings of interest with all his odd humours and obstinate prejudices he is a sterling-hearted old blade he may not be so wonderfully fine a fellow as he thinks himself but he is at least twice as good as his neighbours represent him his virtues are all his own all plain home-bred and unaffected his very faults smack of the raciness of his good qualities his extravagance savours of his generosity his quarrelsomeness of his courage his credulity of his open faith his vanity of his pride and his bluntness of his sincerity they are all the redundancies of a rich and liberal character he is like his own oak rough without but sound and solid within whose bark abounds with excrescences in proportion to the growth and grandeur of the timber and whose branches make a fearful groaning and murmuring in the least storm from their very magnitude and luxuriance there is something too in the appearance of his old family mansion that is extremely poetical and picturesque and as long as it can be rendered comfortably habitable i should almost tremble to see it meddled with during the present conflict of tastes and opinions some of his advisers are no doubt good architects and might be of service but many i fear are mere levellers who when they had once got to work with their mattocks on this venerable edifice will never stop until they have brought it to the ground and perhaps buried themselves among the ruins all that i wish is that john's present troubles may teach him more prudence in future that he may cease to distress his mind about other people's affairs that he may give up the fruitless attempt to promote the good of his neighbours and 
the peace and happiness of the world by dint of the cudgel that he may remain quietly at home gradually get his house into repair cultivate his rich estate according to his fancy husband his income if he thinks proper bring his unruly children into order if he can renew the jovial scenes of ancient prosperity and long enjoy on his paternal lands a green and honourable and a merry old age the mutability of literature a colloquy in westminster abbey by washington irving i know that all beneath the moon decays and what by mortals in this world is brought in time's great period shall return to naught i know that all the muses heavenly lays with toil of sprite which are so dearly bought as idle sounds of few or none are sought that there is nothing lighter than mere praise by drummond of hawthornden there are certain half-dreaming moods of mind in which we naturally steal away from noise and glare and seek some quiet haunt where we may indulge our reveries and build our air castles undisturbed in such a mood i was loitering about the old grey cloisters of westminster abbey enjoying that luxury of wandering thought which one is apt to dignify with the name of reflection when suddenly an interruption of madcap boys from westminster school playing at football broke in upon the monastic stillness of the place making the vaulted passages and mouldering tombs echo with their merriment i sought to take refuge from their noise by penetrating still deeper into the solitudes of the pile and applied to one of the vergers for admission to the library he conducted me through a portal rich with the crumbling sculpture of former ages which opened upon a gloomy passage leading to the chapter house and the chamber in which doomsday book is deposited just within the passage is a small door on the left to this the verger applied a key it was double locked and open with some difficulty as if seldom used we now ascended a dark narrow staircase and passing through a second door entered the library i found myself in a lofty antique hall the roof supported by massive joists of old english oak it was soberly lighted by a row of gothic windows at a considerable height from the floor and which apparently opened upon the roofs of the cloisters an ancient picture of some reverend dignitary of the church in his robes hung over the fireplace around the hall and in a small gallery were the books arranged in carved oaken cases they consisted principally of old polemical writers and were much more worn by time than use in the centre of the library was a solitary table with two or three books on it an inkstand without ink and a few pens parched by long disuse 
the place seemed fitted for quiet study and profound meditation it was buried deep among the massive walls of the abbey and shut up from the tumult of the world i could only hear now and then the shouts of the schoolboys faintly swelling from the cloisters and the sound of a bell tolling for prayers echoing soberly along the roofs of the abbeys by degrees the shouts of merriment grew fainter and fainter and at length died away the bell ceased to toll and a profound silence reigned through the dusky hall i had taken down a little thick quarto curiously bound in parchment with brass clasps and seated myself at the table in a venerable elbow chair instead of reading however i was beguiled by the solemn monastic air and lifeless quiet of the place into a train of musing as i looked around upon the old volumes in their mouldering covers thus ranged on the shelves and apparently never disturbed in their repose i could not but consider the library a kind of literary catacomb where authors like mummies are piously entombed and left to blacken and moulder in dusty oblivion how much thought i has each of these volumes now thrust aside with such indifference cost some aching head how many weary days how many sleepless nights how have their authors buried themselves in the solitude of cells and cloisters shut themselves up from the face of man and the still more blessed face of nature and devoted themselves to painful research and intense reflection and all for what to occupy an inch of dusty shelf to have the title of their works read now and then in a future age by some drowsy churchman or casual straggler like myself and in another age to be lost even to remembrance such is the amount of this boasted immortality a mere temporary rumour a local sound like the tone of that bell which has just tolled among these towers filling the ear for a moment lingering transiently in echo and then passing away like a thing that was not while i sat half murmuring half meditating these unprofitable speculations with my head resting on my hand i was thrumming with the other upon the quarto until i accidentally loosened the clasps when to my utter astonishment the little book gave two or three yawns like one awakening from a deep sleep then a husky <clears throat> and at length began to talk at first its voice was very hoarse and broken being much troubled by a cobweb which some studious spider had woven across it and having probably contracted a cold from long exposure to the chills and damps of the abbey in a short time however it became more distinct and i soon found it an exceedingly fluent conversable little tome its language to be sure was rather quaint and obsolete and its pronunciation what in the present day would be deemed barbarous but i shall endeavour as far as i am able to render it in modern parlance it began with railings about the neglect of the world 
about merit being suffered to languish in obscurity and other such commonplace topics of literary ripening and complained bitterly that it had not been opened for more than two centuries that the dean only looked now and then into the library sometimes took down a volume or two trifled with them for a few moments and then returned them to their shelves what a plague do they mean said the little quarto which i began to perceive was somewhat choleric what a plague do they mean by keeping several thousand volumes of us shut up here and watched by a set of old vergers like so many beauties in a harem merely to be looked at now and then by the dean books were written to give pleasure and to be enjoyed and i would have a rule passed that the dean should pay each of us a visit at least once a year or if he is not equal to the task let them once in a while turn loose the whole school of westminster among us that at any rate we may now and then have an airing softly my worthy friend replied i you are not aware how much better you are off than most books of your generation by being stored away in this ancient library you are like the treasured remains of those saints and monarchs which lie enshrined in the adjoining chapels while the remains of your contemporary mortals left to the ordinary course of nature have long since returned to dust sir said the little tome ruffling his leaves and looking big i was written for all the world not for the bookworms of an abbey i was intended to circulate from hand to hand like other great contemporary works but here have i been clasped up for more than two centuries and might have silently fallen a prey to those worms that are playing the very vengeance with my intestines if you had not by chance given me an opportunity of uttering a few last words before i go to pieces my good friend rejoined i had you been left to the circulation of which you speak you would long ere this have been no more to judge from your physiognomy you are now well stricken in years very few of your contemporaries can be at present in existence and those few owe their longevity to being immured like yourself in old libraries which suffer me to add instead of likening to harems you might more properly and gratefully have compared to those infirmaries attached to religious establishments for the benefit of the old and decrepit and where by quiet fostering and no employment they often endure to an amazingly good-for-nothing old age you talk of your contemporaries as if in circulation where do we meet with their works what do we hear of robert groteste of lincoln no one could have toiled harder than he for immortality he is said to have written nearly two hundred volumes he built as it were a pyramid of books to perpetuate his name but alas the pyramid has long since fallen and only a few fragments are scattered in various libraries where they are scarcely disturbed even by the antiquarian what do we hear of geraldus cambrensis the historian antiquary philosopher theologian and poet he declined 
to bishoprics that he might shut himself up and write for posterity but posterity never inquires after his labours what of henry of huntington who besides a learned history of england wrote a treatise on the contempt of the world which the world has revenged by forgetting him what is quoted of joseph of exeter styled the miracle of his age in classical composition of his three great heroic poems one is lost forever excepting a mere fragment the others are known only to a few of the curious in literature and as to his love verses and epigrams they have entirely disappeared what is in current use of john wallace the franciscan who acquired the name of the tree of life of william of malmesbury of simeon of durham of benedict of peterborough of john hanville of st albans of prithee friend cried the quarto in a testy tone how old do you think me you are talking of authors that lived long before my time and wrote either in latin or french so that they in a manner expatriated themselves and deserved to be forgotten in latin and french hath many serene rites had great delight to indite and have many noble things fulfilled but certes there been some that speak in their posy in french of which speech the frenchmen have as good a fantasy as we have in hearing of frenchmen's english from chaucer's testament of love and of footnote but i sir was ushered into the world from the press of the renowned winken de word i was written in my own native tongue at a time when the language had become fixed and indeed i was considered a model of pure and elegant english i should observe that these remarks were couched in such intolerably antiquated terms that i have had infinite difficulty in rendering them into modern phraseology i cry your mercy said i for mistaking your age but it matters little almost all the writers of your time have likewise passed into forgetfulness and the words publications are mere literary rarities among book collectors the purity and stability of language too on which you found your claims to perpetuity have been the fallacious dependence of authors of every age even back to the times of the worthy robert of gloucester who wrote his history in rhymes of mongrel saxon footnote holinshed in his chronicle observes afterwards also by diligent travel of geoffrey chaucer and of john gower in the time of richard the second and after them of john scogan and john lydgate monk of berry our said tongue was brought to an excellent pass notwithstanding that it never came into the type of perfection until the time of queen elizabeth wherein john jowell bishop of sorum john fox and sundry learned and excellent writers have fully accomplished the ornature of the same to their great praise and immortal commendation even now 
many talk of spencer's well of pure english undefiled as if the language ever sprang from a well or fountain-head and was not rather a mere confluence of various tongues perpetually subject to changes and intermixtures it is this which has made english literature so extremely mutable and the reputation built upon it so fleeting unless thought can be committed to something more permanent and unchangeable than such a medium even thought must share the fate of everything else and fall into decay this should serve as a check upon the vanity and exultation of the most popular writer he finds the language in which he has embarked his fame gradually altering and subject to the dilapidations of time and the caprice of fashion he looks back and beholds the early authors of his country once the favourites of their days supplanted by modern writers a few short ages have covered them with obscurity and their merits can only be relished by the quaint taste of the bookworm and such he anticipates will be the fate of his own work which however it may be admired in its day and held up as a model of purity will in the course of years grow antiquated and obsolete until it shall become almost as unintelligible in its native land as an egyptian obelisk or one of those runic inscriptions said to exist in the deserts of tartary i declare added i with some emotion when i contemplate a modern library filled with new works in all the bravery of rich gilding and binding i feel disposed to sit down and weep like the good xerxes when he surveyed his army pranked out in all the splendour of military array and reflected that in one hundred years not one of them would be in existence ah said the little quarto with a heavy sigh i see how it is these modern scribblers have superseded all the good old authors i suppose nothing is read nowadays but sir philip sidney's arcadia sackville's stately plays and mirror of magistrates or the fine-spun euphuisms of the unparalleled john lyly there you are again mistaken said i the writers whom you suppose in vogue because they happened to be so when you were last in circulation have long since had their day sir philip sidney's arcadia the immortality of which was so fondly predicted by his admirers footnote live ever sweet book the simple image of his gentle wit and the golden pillar of his noble courage and ever notify unto the world that thy writer was the secretary of eloquence the breath of the muses the honey-bee of the daintiest flowers of wit and art the pith of moral and intellectual virtues the arm of bellona in the field the tongue of suada in the chamber the sprite of practice in s and the paragon of excellency in print harvey pierce's supererogation End of footnote. and which in truth is full of noble thoughts 
delicate images and graceful turns of language is now scarcely ever mentioned sackville has strutted into obscurity and even lyly though his writings were once the delight of a court and apparently perpetuated by a proverb is now scarcely known even by name a whole crowd of authors who wrote and wrangled at the time have likewise gone down with all their writings and their controversies wave after wave of succeeding literature has rolled over them until they are buried so deep that it is only now and then that some industrious diver after fragments of antiquity brings up a specimen for the gratification of the curious for my part i continued i consider this mutability of language a wise precaution of providence for the benefit of the world at large and of authors in particular to reason from analogy we daily behold the varied and beautiful tribes of vegetables growing up flourishing adorning the fields for a short time and then fading into dust to make way for their successors were not this the case the fecundity of nature would be a grievance instead of a blessing the earth would groan with rank and excessive vegetation and its surface become a tangled wilderness in like manner the works of genius and learning decline and make way for subsequent productions language gradually varies and with it fade away the writings of authors who have flourished their allotted time otherwise the creative powers of genius would overstock the world and the mind would be completely bewildered in the endless mazes of literature formerly there were some restraints on this excessive multiplication works had to be transcribed by hand which was a slow and laborious operation they were written either on parchment which was expensive so that one work was often erased to make way for another or on papyrus which was fragile and extremely perishable authorship was a limited and unprofitable craft pursued chiefly by monks in the leisure and solitude of their cloisters the accumulation of manuscripts was slow and costly confined almost entirely to monasteries to these circumstances it may in some measure be owing that we have not been inundated by the intellect of antiquity that the fountains of thought have not been broken up and modern genius drowned in the deluge but the inventions of paper and the press have put an end to all these restraints they have made every one a writer and enabled every mind to pour itself into print and diffuse itself over the whole intellectual world the consequences are alarming the stream of literature has swollen into a torrent augmented into a river expanded into a sea a few centuries since five or six hundred manuscripts constituted a great library but what would you say to libraries such as actually exist containing three or four hundred thousand volumes legions of authors at the same time busy and the press going on with fearful increasing activity to double and quadruple the number unless some unforeseen mortality should break out among the progeny of the muse 
now that she has become so prolific i tremble for posterity i fear the mere fluctuation of language will not be sufficient criticism may do much it increases with the increase of literature and resembles one of those salutary checks on population spoken of by economists all possible encouragement therefore should be given to the growth of critics good or bad but i fear all will be in vain let criticism do what it may writers will write printers will print and the world will inevitably be overstocked with good books it will soon be the employment of a lifetime merely to learn their names many a man of passable information at the present day reads scarcely anything but reviews and before long a man of erudition will be little better than a mere walking catalogue my very good sir said the little quarto yawning most drearily in my face excuse my interrupting you but i perceive you are rather given to prose i would ask the fate of an author who was making some noise just as i left the world his reputation however was considered quite temporary the learned shook their heads at him for he was a poor half-educated varlet that knew little of latin and nothing of greek and had been obliged to run the country for deer-stealing i think his name was shakespeare i presume he soon sunk into oblivion on the contrary said i it is owing to that very man that the literature of his period has experienced a duration beyond the ordinary term of english literature there rise authors now and then who seem proof against the mutability of language because they have rooted themselves in the unchanging principles of human nature they are like gigantic trees that we sometimes see on the banks of a stream which by their vast and deep roots penetrating through the mere surface and laying hold on the very foundations of the earth preserve the soil around them from being swept away by the ever-flowing current and hold up many a neighbouring plant and perhaps worthless weed to perpetuity such is the case with shakespeare whom we behold defying the encroachments of time retaining in modern use the language and literature of his day and giving duration to many an indifferent author merely for having flourished in his vicinity but even he i grieve to say is gradually assuming the tint of age and his whole form is overrun by a profession of commentators who like clambering vines and creepers almost bury the noble plant that upholds them here the little quarto began to heave his sides and chuckle until at length he broke out into a plethoric fit of laughter that had well nigh choked him by reason of his excessive corpulency mighty well cried he as soon as he could recover breath mighty well and so you would persuade me that the literature of an age is to be perpetuated by a vagabond deer-stealer by a man without learning by a poet forsooth a poet and here he wheezed forth another fit of laughter i confess that i felt somewhat nettled at his rudeness which however i pardoned on account of his having flourished in a less polished age 
i determined nevertheless not to give up my point yes resumed i positively a poet for of all writers he has the best chance for immortality others may write from the head but he writes from the heart and the heart will always understand him he is the faithful portrayer of nature whose features are always the same and always interesting prose writers are voluminous and unwieldy their pages are crowded with commonplaces and their thoughts expanded into tediousness but with the true poet everything is terse touching or brilliant he gives the choicest thoughts in the choicest language he illustrates them by everything that he sees most striking in nature and art he enriches them by pictures of human life such as it is passing before him his writings therefore contain the spirit the aroma if i may use the phrase of the age in which he lives they are caskets which enclose within a small compass the wealth of the language its family jewels which are thus transmitted in a portable form to posterity the setting may occasionally be antiquated and require now and then to be renewed as in the case of chaucer but the brilliancy and intrinsic value of the gems continue unaltered cast a look back over the long reach of literary history what vast valleys of dullness filled with monkish legends and academical controversies what bogs of theological speculations what dreary wastes of metaphysics here and there only do we behold the heaven illuminated bards elevated like beacons on their wildly separated heights to transmit the pure light of poetical intelligence from age to age footnote throw earth and waters deep the pen by skill doth pass and featly nips the world's abuse and shews us in a glass the virtue and the vice of every right alive the honeycomb that bee doth make is not so sweet in hive as are the golden leaves that drop from the poet's head which doth surmount our common talk as fair as dross doth lid churchyard end of footnote i was just about to launch forth into eulogiums upon the poets of the day when the sudden opening of the door caused me to turn my head it was the verger who came to inform me that it was time to close the library i sought to have a parting word with the quarto but the worthy little tome was silent the clasps were closed and it looked perfectly unconscious of all that had passed i have been to the library two or three times since and have endeavoured to draw it into further conversations but in vain and whether all this rambling colloquy actually took place or whether it was another of those odd day-dreams to which i am subject i have never to this moment been able to discover end of section two